Today is October 29th, 2020, and this is episode number 30, a very spooky pre-Halloween episode number 30 of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. And before we get started, just a bit of advice. Please stay tuned to the very end of this episode because we will have a very enjoyable discussion that I don't want you to miss. So many legal issues have developed and arisen over the past week. So many different rulings, so many different issues, so little time. But I will try to address a few of the more interesting matters that have arisen over the past week since episode number 29 of Blurred Laws and Life. And then we will move on to my guest this week, Jeff Price, former CEO of TuneCore, former CEO of Audium, a proponent of artist rights, a proponent of the rights of small independent music publishers. He has been at the forefront of many different legal issues involving royalties payable to songwriters and publishers by the likes of Spotify and the underpayment of the alleged underpayment of such royalties. And he is now embarking on a new venture a performing rights organization for comedians whose material is broadcast on various services. And um, Jeff saw an opening for that and has started a new company designed to collect those royalties. So I think you'll find Jeff to be a very interesting guest. And I look forward to interviewing him on this landmark, spooky, pre-Halloween, episode number 30 of Blurred Laws and Life. But first, before we get to Jeff, some of the more interesting rulings and issues and matters that have been in the news this week. First, let's start with a matter that I previously mentioned on Blurred Laws in Life. If you recall, several episodes ago, to those of you who listen on a weekly basis to Blurred Laws in Life, I mentioned that a woman by the name of E. Jean Carroll was suing uh, President Donald Trump for defamation relating to his dismissal of her claim that he allegedly raped her more than 20 years ago. He said that it was untrue, and she has sued him for defamation for denying what she claims took place. And President Trump attempted to have the Justice Department defend him in that litigation rather than hiring a personal lawyers. And I mentioned that that issue, whether the Justice Department could represent President Trump, was going to be considered by the federal court judge overseeing that case, and guess what? Now it has. And just this past week, a federal judge in New York ruled that the Justice Department could not step in to shield President Trump from the libel lawsuit filed by Ms. Carroll, 
the court ruled this past week that the government was wrong in its arguments. First, the court said that the law that does not permit suing public officials for a libel does not apply to the President of the United States. It only applies to federal employees defined as officers of federal agencies, a description, the judge says, that does not include the president who is in a different legal status. Second, the judge said that the president's statements about something that happened more than two decades before he became president of the United States are not within the scope of his official conduct, and therefore the Justice Department could not represent him. Quoting from the judge's decisions, the court said, quote, President Trump's views on the plaintiff's sexual assault allegation may be interesting to some, but they reveal nothing about the operation of government. A comment about government action, public policy, or even an election is categorically different than a comment about an alleged sexual assault that took place roughly 20 years before the president took office, end quote. The court went on to say that accepting the government's view would mean that a president is free to defame anyone who criticizes his conduct or impugns his character. As a result, the case against President Trump will proceed, and President Trump will have to hire his own independent, private legal counsel. Also, just today, the CEOs of Google... Facebook, and Twitter testified before the Senate Commerce Committee on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives websites that host user-generated content broad protection from legal liability for content posted on their sites. We previously talked about this and the move by President Trump and others to remove that immunity from liability that these websites enjoy. And what that would mean if Section 230 was repealed would be that every false statement that was potentially defamatory on a website, think of every user comment you basically see, could be actionable against the site. This would completely change the internet as we know it, if Section 230 were repealed. Mark Zuckerberg spoke about the importance of Section 230 in his remarks before Congress today. He said, quote, from our perspective, Section 230 does two basic things. First, it encourages free expression, which is fundamentally important. And second, it allows platforms to moderate content. Without 230, platforms could face liability for basic moderation. So, of course, from the perspective of these sites who want to maintain their immunity from liability and encourage people to speak freely on the internet, they are focusing on the First Amendment rights of individuals and how impeding those rights would severely limit and change the way the internet operates. This Section 230 serves, according to these websites, as a foundational piece of the internet and its goal of protecting free expression. Both President Trump from the Republican side, however, and Joe Biden from the Democratic side seem intent on killing the law completely, but for different reasons. 
While Section 230 was created in 1996 to enable online platforms to make quote-unquote good faith efforts to moderate user-generated content deemed quote-unquote objectionable without facing liability over their content, President Trump now charges the law actually allows big tech to silence content with impunity. While certain Democrats, including Mr. Biden, say it allows the companies to spread false information with ease. While that may be true, the law has supported the growth of many companies consumers rely on today. The goal of the law initially was to let message board operators or large companies remove problematic user content from their sites without treating them as though they were either making the actual statements or making editorial decisions akin to a media publication. Without Section 230, community and social platforms ranging from Yelp to Facebook to virtually any website with a comment section would face huge liabilities for anything posted on their sites. Again, while the Constitution's First Amendment protects the speech of these private companies as well as individuals, lawmakers on both sides now have taken issue with the broad legal immunity tech giants enjoy under Section 230. And lawmakers blame Section 230 for allowing social media companies to moderate content too aggressively in the eyes of some Republicans or not enough from the perspective of some Democrats. While the hearings today were set to focus on this Section 230 and whether it should be repealed, essentially it denigrated to showboating by the senators in charge of the committee and with many of them simply attacking these CEOs for what they view as attempts to influence the election or influence media content. It seems to me that this law is absolutely necessary. Without it, these tech giants would not be able to allow the platforms to exist in their current state and freedom of expression and free speech would be severely impacted. There would be massive censorship, which would create its own problems. So I don't believe this law will ultimately be repealed. I don't think that's going to happen because the law of unintended consequences would kick in and the damage that would be done would far exceed the benefit of repealing Section 230. On the other hand, I don't think it is unimaginable that there will be tweaks to the law, there will be changes to the law, there may be some watering down of the law, and we will have to see how that occurs. But the appetite for going after these tech companies, which have been hammered by the legislature, by the Senate and Congress, picked on as the bad guys, no matter what they do, it seems like, will certainly drive some change to Section 230. What that will be, it is hard to know and it is hard to predict. Much like everything else that politicians do, the end result of what happens with Section 230 will depend upon the political climate and what many of these senators believe is in their own best self-interest. So certainly stay tuned because this show, and that's what it is, has just gotten started, and it will be very interesting to see how it develops. 
And finally, before we get to Jeff Price, in a sign of the times, in the craziest year of them all, 2020, just when you thought it couldn't get any crazier, it has. Yesterday, a Michigan judge actually ruled in favor of gun rights activists that it is acceptable and not unlawful for people going to polling places on election day to be able to carry open sidearms. The open carry of firearms, according to this judge, is allowable and acceptable and cannot be restricted at polling places on election day. Something tells me this will not end well. 2020, believe it or not, you didn't think it could get any crazier? Well, it just has. And with that, it's time for my guest on episode number 30 of Blurred Laws in Life, Jeff Price. Okay, so now I have on Blurred Laws in Life, episode number 30, the Halloween edition of Blurred Laws in Life, the very spooky Jeff Price. Hi, Jeff. Yes, I'm trying to think of which spooky voice to do. (laughs) Please, not necessary. (laughs) Between, it was between Frankenstein and, and, and Dracula, but I just, I got frozen in the moment i know you had stage fright you you couldn't do it so um jeff thanks for being on blurred laws in life i really appreciate it you've listened to other episodes of blurred laws in life have you not i have yes so you know that we like to have a little bit of fun with guests on blurred laws in life and in order to qualify as a guest on blurred laws in life you have to believe in alternate realities. You have to believe in the butterfly effect. And of course you have to believe in reptilian aliens who are controlling our minds and our lives. I'm three for three. So I'm all set. You do believe in all three of those. That's good. I do. I watched V the miniseries. I, uh, um, adamant believer in the butterfly effect and I don't remember the third thing, but alternate reality, absolutely. Reptilian aliens. Reptilian aliens. Well, that's that's the the miniseries V from you know my childhood. Okay, Jeff, you have a very interesting. Well, let me ask this question: You have a very interesting background. You are a strong proponent of songwriter rights, and you have fought for royalties for small publishers and songwriters and and so forth in your career. Um. What is your, we're going, to, we're going to talk about your career, we're going to talk about your new venture, the PRO for spoken comedy, and those comedians who may not have collected their royalties as they should have over the years. We'll talk about that in a moment. But before we do, I do want to ask you, what is your preference in music? What is your favorite type of music? You know, that's a good question. Um, it's a broad spectrum. You know, i I was a late bloomer in that I found myself not listening to bands like Led Zeppelin or the Who just because the frat kids in college listened to them. And 
it pissed me off and I decided I didn't want to be associated with that and found them later in life. So I've sort of rediscovered classic rock while simultaneously very into indie rock and alternative rock, but also a big fan of people like Berlioz and Bach uh, and EDM as well. It's, it's a pretty broad spectrum, but at the top of the list, you know, sits the Beatles, paperback writer, and that George, um, George Harrison guitar sound is just groundbreaking. So um, definitely rock guitar but very wide spectrum of music so for those of people who are listening out there who don't know the business side of music um did your did your love of music bring you draw you into the music business it it did music defined or helped me define who i was when i couldn't quite figure it out uh, from the Smiths and Susie and the Banshee and Joy Division and being a goth kid back in high school, you know, smoking clove cigarettes with black fingernails. It it helped me establish who I was. And as I moved through my life, I uh, had the opportunity to start a record label with my high school friend and partner, Joel. And um, that's how I got into the music industry. It's a teaching job fell through, to be perfectly blunt. I was supposed to go back to my old private high school and teach social studies and creative writing. And the job fell through three weeks before it was supposed to start. And I poked around and did some other things. And my friend Joel wanted to release a CD back in 1990 of these indie rock bands that we listened to on 7-inch vinyl. I asked if I could help him. And our record label, Spin Art Records, was born, which was my career for the next 17 and a half years. Oh, wow. And so I know you from TuneCore and then the company Audium where you served as CEO in, in both spots. Let's talk about TuneCore for a moment, because I know you were the CEO of TuneCore. How did, and I want you to kind of explain to everybody what TuneCore did, what, what your vision for TuneCore was, how you started TuneCore, because I don't think a lot of people understand the way modern music is distributed these days, and I think that'll be a, a nice bit of education for everybody out there. So how, how did you go from having a record label to starting TuneCore, if that was your next stop? Well, necessity is the mother of invention, uh, and and it really held true with me as well. After running my label, Spin Art Records, with Joel, my partner, in 2005... Did Joel have a last name, called, or was it just be, like Beyonce? Because you keep saying Joel. Joel. Joel is like Morrissey. No, his last name is Morowitz. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So and, not like um, Beyonce or, or Sting. <laughs> We're not cool enough to have the mono name. We are definitely a, a you know first last name. Okay. Um, but seventeen and a half years into running our record label, it was over and it was brutal. Um, you know, we were four people sitting in a small office and we had to fire staff and try to figure out how to stay in business. While that was happening, while Spin Art Records was going out of business, I was very, to be blunt, angry, frustrated. Um, I did not like what I saw as artists being taken advantage of by new music distribution companies. The way the industry used to work is a record label would editorially decide who they thought had value. They'd go out into the world of artists and pick one and go, we're going to sign you to our label. And in doing so, when the artist signed the contract, they would assign ownership of their copyrights to the record label. And in addition, whenever the record would sell, the pre-recorded music on the vinyl or the CD would sell, the artist would typically get about 12% of the money as a royalty. And then there was fun to the royalty accounting, which meant the artist never got paid. But in return for that, the record label was able to manufacture the CDs or the vinyl. It would front the cost. If you want to sell 
10,000 copies of something, you need to manufacture at least 17,000 copies of something to ship it out onto the physical retail store spaces. And you need to pay those bills up front before the stuff sells, if it sells. So the labels would front the cost in many cases of manufacturing, and they would have relationships with what's called distributors. And the distributors would pick, pack, and ship these little pieces of plastic or 12-inch vinyl record into boxes, onto pallets, into trucks, and ship them off to over 10,000-plus record stores around the United States. And now these record stores had a limited amount of shelf space. right? If some, at one point, if something is in stock, something else is not. So they would fight their way into the shelf space, and sometimes they would even pay the retail stores money to rent the shelf space to force the record to be available on sale. So you would spend between 2 to $3 for each record that you shipped. In this big, massive warehouse that would pick, pack, and ship that sent all the stuff out, everything that shipped out that was put on the shelves of these record stores was on consignment, meaning the stores could return anything basically at any point for a full refund. So the back and forth of inventory and shipping and credit and keeping track of all of this and the manufacturing and the returns and the advertising, all, all this was going on. And that's what distribution was. It was distributing the product onto the shelf of the store where the consumer could go to buy it if they wanted to through marketing and promotion. Right? Uh, the music industry is about monetizing fame. And the way they used to do it was by at one point of sale – when someone would walk into a retail store, slap down their money, and buy that record at the cash register. And all of that changed when technology came around and digital came around. You went from having to fight your way onto shelf space and fronting for the cost of manufacturing to having unlimited shelf space where everything could be in stock and no detriment to anybody else. Right, Richard, if you recorded a song, it could go into Apple Music or iTunes, and it won't stop Radiohead from being there nor will it stop anyone from buying Radiohead, right? So everything could be available to be found if searched. And it's freaking Star Trek where the inventory only manufactures itself after it's ordered. It just replicates itself for download. So if you have access to unlimited shelf space and you don't need to manufacture anything up front, it's just about having the contract with Apple that lets you put your stuff into their store. And that was the change, the radical change that happened. Sony Records, Warner Music Group, Universal Music had these massive infrastructures to deal with this world of physical. And a punk no snot like me shows up with a computer sitting in his office or his bedroom with internet access and happened to have the magic contract with iTunes that allowed me to put the music onto the shelf of the iTunes music store. So as Spin Art Records was going down and going out of business, I was also really pissed off that these new companies had popped up and said, we're going to provide you distribution into the digital stores, but we're going to do it without needing that any of that old infrastructure, but we're going to charge you the same types of fees. We're still going to charge you 20 30% every time the music sells. And I thought, why? All you're doing is moving a digital file from point A to point B. So it was a culmination of trying to come up with a way to stay in business combined with a passion to write what I thought was a wrong, where I thought artists were getting screwed and labels were getting screwed. And I came up with an idea for a company called TuneCore, which would, for the first time in the history of the music industry, have no editorial barrier. Anybody that recorded anything from music to spooky Halloween noises to your own song could just go to a website. It was TuneCore.com, upload their stuff, and we would put it onto the shelves of the digital music stores. And when the music sold, you would get all of the money. We wouldn't take any of it. 
And in exchange, you paid a simple flat fee for the service. So I commoditized distribution and I democratized distribution. All this music flooded out into the music services. TuneCorn became the largest music distribution company in the world. And by the time I left in 2012, after starting the company in 2006, January 2006, over a three-year period, by the time I left in 2012, the clients of TuneCore had sold over $800 million worth of their music. All of it had gone back into their pockets. TuneCore got paid its very upfront fee, and we radically changed the global music industry by allowing this new distribution model. So that that's what TuneCore was and is. Unfortunately, post-departure, I'm not quite sure what it's up to, and it's might have different priorities, but at the time it was radical. It changed the industry and it was exciting. And that, and, and that's that was your important. brainchild. Oh yeah. I mean, the sorts of things that we had to deal with, um, you know, first I had to learn how to work with technology. I don't code, but working with engineers and understanding how to deal with scalable systems and transcoding music files and delivering music files with the information about the music files. It's called metadata, the delivery of that, um, how to deal with artwork. I mean, if you think about sort of the fun, you don't, you can't send an album cover to iTunes that has like a, a big piece of genitalia on it. You can't have, you know, swear words in the album cover. It has to meet certain pixel specifications and teaching this to people and explaining it or creating systems to deliver all of this. And then that's just, that's just getting it there. Then it goes live, then it sells. And then you get back these massive spreadsheets. They're not even spreadsheets. You can't even open them in Excel. Right? How do you ingest these massive royalty statements that come in with literally tens of millions of lines in them, each one connecting to a different client and a customer? And sometimes you are dealing with payments that went up to 27 places to the right of a decimal point. So building systems to ingest information, parse it, uh, business logic around it, showing people what was going on and finding the holes in the data. That was that was quite an education as well. And I raised venture capital and I got a very interesting education in regards to how money is expensive and what it means to work with venture capital institutions and, and so forth. Um, so yeah, it, and it was nuts. And sometimes you found yourself dealing with crazy shit. Like we had 10 DJs from the UK create their own music. They came to TuneCore, they uploaded it. We distributed it into iTunes. They then went to iTunes and they bought their own music using stolen credit cards had over 10,000 stolen credit cards, and they bought over a million dollars of their own music from iTunes. iTunes paid uh, TuneCore. TuneCore, in turn, was supposed to pay its client. They were literally printing money. And we kind of figured this whole thing out, and we collaborated with iTunes. We stopped the money flow, and ultimately, if you go online and you type, right in, type into Google, like TuneCore DJ Fraud UK, you'll see the articles. They caught these guys. They ended up going to prison. But this is the sort of stuff I had to deal with, which I was just like, I just want to distribute music and make the world a better place. And I'm dealing with this crap. That's a, so, yeah, it, it's quite an education. So a couple of questions that I have when you first got started with TuneCore. I would assume that the artists who were having TuneCore distribute these recordings to iTunes were not signed to the were not signed to any record label or were not signed to major record labels, right? Because otherwise it would have been the record labels who were distributing to iTunes, correct? That's right. So the the constituency of the clients we served was the artists that controlled the rights to their own sound recordings. They were not signed to record labels. They became their own record labels by providing them access to distribution. 
they by default became a record label. So basically we went from a recording industry where in order to distribute music, you had to have a major record label deal or a, re or a record label deal to the 21st century where you or I, if we had the talent and ability, could record a song, send it to TuneCore or to some other distribution platform and get it played on, on iTunes. And you didn't even need a record deal any longer to get your music played. Yeah, well, there there were arguments about that. Um, what is a record label? What is its function and purpose? And did technology disintermediate it? You know, the TuneCore model disintermediated the distribution companies. That's for certain. Did it disintermediate the record labels? What is the function of a record label? Well, to your point, Richard, it used to be you needed to have access to a lot of money to pay to a recording studio in order to record the music that you created. And in many cases, you had the talent to write the song, but you didn't have the talent to record it. That's where engineers and producers came in and studios. But technology came along and lowered the bar as far as the knowledge and technology and what you needed to record. So now, you know, any kid can sit there with GarageBand on their Mac and lo and behold, record. Right. So the bar keeps getting lower. Then you move into manufacturing. You don't need the label to front for manufacturing. Then it came to things like marketing and promotion. And everyone says, well, look, a label needs to market and promote, right? And the answer is yes, but the major record labels have spent tens of hundreds of billions of dollars on marketing and promotion. But going back in time, traditionally, only 2%, 2% of what they released succeeded and the other 98% failed. So there's this sort of fallacy that if only I had marketing and promotion, I would succeed. No, getting signed to a record label is the beginning of the journey not the end. And then you move into how did people used to consume and discover music, discover it to consume it, right? And it used to be print magazines, Rolling Stone, Spin Magazine, uh, radio, AM, FM radio, and MTV. Those were the three big marketing and promotional vehicles. And if you think about those vehicles, right, and then the record labels, think about the amount of music that's making it to the customer when they walk into the store. First, you have the first editorial filter of the label who are predetermining what it is they're going to release. Then you get to the second cut where the retail stores are deciding what they're going to bring in. Then you move to the other cuts, radio, MTV, and printer deciding what they're going to expose. So by the time you walk into the retail store, a sliver of a sliver of a sliver, what's available out there is available for you to consume. Now, people changed how they discovered music. Think about yourself. How do you discover music? For the most part, people don't use AM and FM radio anymore. MTV doesn't really show music videos, and print magazines are dead. So the three major things that the, that the record label did to market and promote music kind of have gone to the wayside. YouTube has now come up, Twitter, Twitch, social networking, playlists within Apple. So the point is that what function does a record label serve, and what is the relationship in exchange for signing your copyrights and only getting 12% of the money? And that is a value proposition now that an artist should think very heavily about before they sign a contract. What are you getting in exchange for giving up so much? And if you feel that value proposition is there, if there's something they're doing for you that you think you can't do on your own, then by all means, you go right ahead. But make sure you understand what it is you're getting before you sign ownership of your copyrights and give up your revenue. Because a lot of stuff can happen 
without the label. Well, that's obvious because, you know, I have a lot of comments about what you just said. One is that with YouTube and all the YouTube sensations we have out there and the the ability to self-publish and promote yourself on the internet through Instagram, YouTube, all the other platforms that exist, TikTok, you know, the need for promotion, the need for record labels on the one hand has certainly diminished dramatically. Um, When downloads first began their rise and streaming and we went away from the physical world, people were claiming that that was the end of the record label. But then it became apparent that no, they can now be more profitable than ever because all you need now is a few guys or women in a room licensing their intellectual property at very little cost. No longer do you need these very expensive manufacturing plants and distribution networks for physical product. And it's a much cheaper business model now. Um, They're not giving out the big advances like they used to. And it's a much more profitable business. But on the other hand, to your point, are they actually really needed to artists with talent so it kind of cuts both ways but you know they are more profitable now than i think ever before yeah that's a really really good point the risk for a record label has plummeted their gross margins in many cases have increased because the the risk of manufacturing is gone the risk of laying out you know significant advances Kanye West aside, you know, tweeting out his contract, um, the advances and the money they're laying out up front to record has gotten a lot or they don't need to do print uh, in print magazines. They don't need to pay their way into the retail shelves. So the cost of failure is much, much lower than it used to be. They might still have the same hit to miss ratio, but it costs them less. And when they do succeed, the margins are much larger. But the amount of revenue they make now off of the sale of the music or the stream of the music is much less than what it used to be. Right. So there's that push and pull. But yeah, the risk is much lower. Uh, One thing you said that is really interesting to me, and it's going to cause me to tell you a story, this idea that, you know, you can't succeed in the record business without the marketing machine of record labels. So... In the Blurred Lines case, the Pharrell and Robin Thicke team hired this expert, this, I'll put expert in quotes, to testify that even if Marvin Gaye's music was used, it wasn't the music that drove the Blurred Lines' success. It was all the marketing that went along with the song, which would include the X-rated video, um, the naked girls in the X-rated video, the the girls in the um, R-rated video that had their clothes on, and all of that, and that that's what drove the song and all the sales of the song. So I actually, on my cross-examination, which I thought was really good and had the jury laughing, was I asked him, isn't Hollywood littered with highly marketed expensively marketed film and TV shows and music that sucked 
And so didn't sell anything despite a huge marketing machine. And he had to answer yes, of course, because it's the content that always drives the sales. And then I said, and by the way, if you want to see the naked girls on the video, you can go onto YouTube and watch that for free, can't you? And he said, yes. And I said, now when you buy the song, do the naked girls come with the song? <laughs> when you buy the download, do you get like four naked girls that come with it? And he said, of course, no. And that, of course, proves that if you want to just, if you want to listen to the song with the naked girls, you can watch it for free on YouTube. If you're downloading, it's because you like the music. If you're streaming it, it's because you like the music. And I think that resonated with the jury. But to your point, again, you're right. You don't need the marketing machine anymore. You don't need the distribution network. You don't need the manufacturing plant. So, you know, what do you get really as an artist? Yeah. And I adamantly agree with you. The hardest thing for an artist to do is create something that causes some sort of emotional response, right? That, that's it, man. If you can create a piece of art that causes a response, a reaction, that's your ticket. Uh, and that's hard to do. And I agree with you. You know, they could have shown naked men, naked women, naked aliens. It wouldn't have really mattered. What mattered was, was the song causing reaction. Because if all it took was a bunch of naked people gyrating around to sell a song, you know, we'd have a lot more, <laughs> we'd have a lot more naked people gyrating around, a lot more single selling with naked people. It, just, it doesn't work like that. You are absolutely right. It's about the art. Yep. So you end up leaving TuneCore and then your next stop is a new company that you start uh, called Audium. Is that right? Was that your next stop? Yeah. When I left TuneCore, um, my eye was on the world of streaming, things like Spotify, moving from downloads to streams, because I thought whether I liked it or not, that was the future of the industry. And my experiences had taught me that was where there was a big hole in the market. Record labels are about selling, making art and culture and selling it. They're not big data companies. They're not technology companies. The Warner Music Group's not going to make a smartphone any more than Apple's going to write the song Hotel California. Right. And so what was happening is these technology companies, Apple and Google and Spotify and Amazon, were sending off massive amounts of data to the labels, but the labels didn't know how to deal with it. They, you know, they're not technology companies. And there was an inequality occurring and inequity. And I thought, well, I know that the Dolly Partons aren't getting paid. I know that's not happening. So I created Audium to work for the songwriters of the world or the companies that work for songwriters called publishing administrators and began working for Dolly Parton in Metallica and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Jason Mraz and Roundtown Music Publishing and all these big uh, entities and so forth and built the technology. So when Spotify sent a royalty statement, I could see and untangle what was going on. And we sort of uncovered the fact that the streaming music services, the interactive streaming services, not the radio streaming services like the original Pandora or Sirius XM, but the interactive ones like uh, Napster, Rhapsody, Spotify, they weren't following the rules. They weren't following the law. They had just taken the world's songs, the lyric and the melodies, in many cases, without a license. They just infringed on copyright, stole it, took it, and weren't paying anybody. And yeah, Audium built the technology and began working to license and collect that money for the Dolly Partons of the world, which triggered multiple lawsuits against some of the biggest music services from sort of the data we unearthed and, and 
we were able to sort of fix that problem somewhat until the Music Modernization Act came in. But um, that's what Audium continues to do. Very interesting. And as you know, I handled some of those cases. There were clash actions that were filed against Spotify, and there were some individual lawsuits where I represented some of the music publishers that you mentioned and others in litigation against Spotify for exactly what you just said. So, Hey, and for what it's worth, Richard, I, I learned a lot about copyright law through these cases that you were involved in reading about them or, or just learning about them. It, you can't win the game if you don't know the rules, but once you understand them, oh, it really opens your eyes. And, and I, I did, I've learned a lot through what you've done and be able to apply it to the way I run a business. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jeff, very much. So fast forward now to your current in Denver. Are, do you consider yourself a comedian? <laughs> sometimes. Uh, sometimes no, but it turns out I, I, I make a fool of myself. Do you have as much love for comedy as you do for music? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't love comedy? Who, you know, music, comedy, what is there not to love? Um, Who are your favorite comedians? Uh, John Mulaney cracks me up. James Acaster uh, cracks me up. Sh Amy Schumer can crack me up. You know, I'm not going to name anybody, I don't think, that hasn't sort of cut in the mainstream. I think Chappelle is a, a genius. You know, that's funny. Now, and the reason why I'm asking these questions, I, I mentioned before that you, you started this PRO, Performing Rights Organization, to collect performance royalties for comedians whose material is being streamed and otherwise exploited. So that's why I'm asking these questions. And it's funny because I was listening to, I think it was, I was driving somewhere and I was listening to the Max Kellerman show. And for some reason they had on the show, this comedian, I can't remember who it was, but they were asking who is the greatest comedian of all time, stand-up. And the overwhelming winner was Chappelle, Dave Chappelle. And do you know what struck me about that is that the people don't have an understanding, I don't think, of some of the greatest comedians of all time that were in prior generations. Because, yeah, David Chappelle is good. David Chappelle is great. I grew up with Richard Pryor and Steve Martin and some of those guys. And I would say Richard Pryor was probably, I, I think Richard Pryor was better than Dave Chappelle. And then you have also, like, in generations past, guys like Don Rickles, Lenny Bruce, Abbott and Costello. I mean... The names are legendary, and I think as time passes, you t George Carlin, you tend to forget about some of the great comedians that predated like modern times. So I don't know if you have a top five, but I'm sure you have more of a historical perspective on it than many people today would have. So I'm curious if you have like a top five of all time. You know, it's it's a good question, and there's many people far more educated than I on the sort of the history of comedy. But as you reflect back on it, it is such a change in the way it used to be. It used to be, at least for me, as I understand it, and I'm certain there's going to be a listener that will correct me, and I hope they do. Sort of look at the 
way comedy has evolved. It started with vaudeville, then it moved to radio, then it moved to television with variety shows, Uncle Milty with this variety show, and occasionally a Vegas act. But there weren't like boatloads of comedians. You move into the 60s, and then you begin to get the underground, and Lenny Bruce, you know, he's the biggest name that I'm aware of from that time. But comedy really, and comedians in particular, didn't really begin to explode until, as I understand it, the early 80s, when underground... I disagree with that. Richard Pryor, Sorry, like I, I completely disagree with that. Richard Pryor was a cultural phenomenon in the 1970s. Well, it's, well there's always exceptions to the rule. But Steve Martin, I mean, here's the thing. I'll, I mean, I'll fight you on this because like I was a kid in the 70s, like, but I like it, you had albums. Like, here's my point. And I, I say this about a lot of things, but it really is true about comedy. Today, you have billions of channels billions of outlets, billions of distribution, not billions, I'm exaggerating, thousands of choices of things to watch, channels, hundreds if not thousands of channels to watch. Back in the day, you had three channels. You had limited entertainment choices. So the stars were like Michael Jordan is to, you know, to us. It, they were everything. So Lucille Ball, Don Rickles, Jackie Gleason, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor. They sold out stadiums. They had comedy albums that sold in the millions. Red Fox. Red Fox. You don't have that today because there's just too much diversification. So these guys were like legendary. I'm not suggesting for a moment they're not legendary. No, my point is you're saying that it didn't get going until the 80s, and I would fight you, and they were bigger stars back in the day than any of these people are now. What I'm referring to by the 80s isn't that there, were, there weren't big stars. It's that the amount of comedians, the type of comedy, there was, yes, yeah, Steve Martin, definitely, Red Fox, Richard Pryor, definitely, but it was it I mean, was dude, a when, smaller we were, when we were pool. kids, when Steve Martin came on Saturday Night Live, the whole country stopped. Not knocking the fact that Steve Martin was incredibly and is incredibly talented, and, and no, I but too. It's not even how talented he is. It's not just a whole different level of fame, and but there was, yeah. there was that that wasn't. If that's what you've heard, then I've done a poor job communicating. My point isn't that that didn't exist. My point is, as you move into the '80s, you begin to have a lot more underground clubs, and you begin to get a larger number of com comedians performing. Sort of a, I'll call it like Ellen DeGeneres. Let's start there. They're not even on and, the same it, level, bro. I mean, I, 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 I got I'm not, I'm like, not talking about as great I'm not as Jerry Seinfeld. Well, I mean, as great of success, I should say that Jerry Seinfeld had. I mean, he can't hold Richard Pryor's jock. And he certainly, in, in my mind, you know, and some of these guys that predated like Don Rickles. I mean, that guy was well, incredible Rickles, Rickles in his also 90s. Amazing. But the, I'm not arguing over the talent. I'm arguing over the ability to have exposure, what outlets comedians had, how it worked, the mechanism, not the talent pool. And my point is that like, right? it Richard just, it Pryor just had top-selling you know, albums. Like, I had Richard Pryor's albums. Like, yeah, that, but my that point dude is, was like you know, bigger than yeah, anybody the, is today. It's just, it, it's just the, the comedy infrastructure allowed – it changed. It allowed for different things to happen. I didn't say one is more talented than the other. I'm just saying it changed. I guess my point is that I disagree with you. The distribution is greater now. That's my point. Yes. And so, again, this is my perspective on it. Is you move into the 80s, and really when you move into the 90s, and then you get into the 2000s, technology now, to your point, and I was going to get there, 
entirely agree with you again. Technology has allowed anyone to have uh, access to get exactly. their comedy routine out to the point where you can upload a comedic routine to YouTube and end up getting signed as an SNL cast member. Right. Oh, you know who else was, was listed as, as being a great comedian one of the top of all time is Chris Rock. I love Chris Rock. So I, Oh, I'll, he's, he's, he's freaking, he's, yeah, know, I love Chris yeah, Rock. You know, I think Chris I'm Rock is definitely, Chris Rock, you know who else? I'm, you're gonna, I think Patton Oswalt is a freaking genius. And before the whole me too movement and by no means am I condoning his behavior and what he did. So please, you know, understand that. But Louis CK Man, that that guy when it comes yeah, to his I, I'm comedy. Not, some people love Louis C.K. I'm like, I gotta tell you, more often than not, I listen to comedians right now, and I don't even like crack a smile. Like, it's just not funny. Like to me, I mean, if you go back and and I mentioned this on a prior broadcast of Blurred Laws in Life, when I was a little kid, my mother loved Steve Martin, and I mentioned that my mom just passed away, and when my dad passed away when I was like 10, she would make me do all the routines. I had them all memorized and actually found in her apartment when we were cleaning it out, she still had all of my old Steve Martin albums, believe it or not, in vinyl. And oh, I um, remember them too. Comedy is not pretty. Exactly. Comedy is not pretty and a wild and crazy guy. And let's get small. I had all of those and um, still do. And I had every routine memorized and they were funny, funny, funny. Maybe it was his delivery. I don't know. But it was, and today, I can tell you, I will listen, I will try and watch an HBO comedy special or whatever. I don't even crack a smile. Maybe I'm just getting older and I'm like, well, cranky what or something, I find but. is uh, someone like Tig Notaro or even Margaret Cho, they make me think. They make me uncomfortable. They make me think. You know, well, Andy Kaufman, someone we left. Eddie out Murphy, of there. Was I don't know Eddie Murphy, of course. I forgot about Eddie Murphy. Eddie he, Murphy still is great. He's great. Um, I mean, Eddie Murphy's great. But, Chris Rock is great. Dave Chappelle is, is well, I don't know, I like Dave Chappelle, but I wouldn't put him on the level of Eddie Murphy. There, there is Richard something Pryor. that I find so incredible about somebody, even with, even with Seinfeld, where they provide an explanation or an insight or an observation about something that I have seen a thousand times but never quite viewed in that way that causes me to smile or laugh or it just, holy shit, you know. Don so Rickles, you know, there's, there, Don Rickles was yeah. Well, Rickles amazing. was was a pistol man. <laughs> okay, so now that, we've, now that we've really opened each other's minds, we've listed all these great comedians. Because um, I want to get to your PRO and and what you're doing for these comedians in a moment, and um, end on that. But before we do, now that we've kind of explored a lot of names, who are your top five in order from five down to number one? Oh, geez, that's not fair. You know that changes on a day to day basis too. It, it, I need it. Well, I need it for right? today. Okay, uh, I'm going to leave somebody out. I'm going to feel like an ass. Um, I definitely put Ch Chappelle and Chris Rock in there. Well, I want uh, the numbers. No, you can't just say that. You have to go five, four, three, two, one. I can't. How you can have you to. It's my show. It's my show. Oh, See what I put as my number one. It is my show. Moment. Okay, fine. You know what? I'm going to stick with. I'm going to put Chappelle at number one at the moment. Well, well, go five, I, four, three, two, one. I'm trying. This is not easy, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth. <laughs> Um, no, I want to hear. I, I got to put Pryor in, at number two. Okay, uh, Richard Pryor, and and you I put Chappelle just number one. You put Richard Pryor number two. Okay, I do because of it, it, the cultural relevance and what he means to me at this time. I yeah. do. If you went back, to, you know, to when I was younger, I put Pryor at number one. Uh, I'm gonna put um, I'm gonna put Patton. Uh, no, Patton Oswalt doesn't go three. I just really connect with Patton Oswalt. Um, shit, Richard, this is tough. Come on, do it. I'm working on it. 
I know. Well, can we come back to no. this? Because I, I want. Gotta... I'm going to do my five after you do yours. Then we're going to go. Then we're going to talk about your new business. So let's do it. Fuck. All right. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go with uh, uh, Chappelle, Pryor, Rock. Shit. This is getting tough. Damn it, Richard. I'm getting. I, you have two I, more to I, go. I know. Can I stop at three? No. I need two more. And you didn't even do it the way I, I said to do it five, four, three, two, one. You didn't reverse. I know. Well, I'm I, I'm doing it the other way around because I'm I don't have the mental capacity to do it. It's like saying the alphabet backwards. What do you want me to do? Uh, you know, only because of the two that keep popping in my head: James the Caster and Pat Oswalt. There you go. Okay, I think it's a horrible list, and I think you got it all wrong. I, well, you know, I I don't do well under pressure. All right, here I'm. Let me do mine. Okay, number five, and I would I I would put him higher on the list. As a, and we're just talking about stand-up comedian right now. Stand-up comedian. I'm going number five, Don Rickles. He could easily be number one, but I'm going to go number five because that guy is a genius and like none other. Anyone who ever seen him, you can't help but laugh. And I mean like rolling laugh. So I'm probably doing him a disservice by putting him number five, but I'm going to put Don Rickles number five. <sighs> Chappelle's not going to make my list. Just letting you know that. Number four is going to be Chris Rock. Number three is going to be Eddie Murphy. Number two is going to be Steve Martin. And number one is going to be Richard Pryor. Boom. That's it. And my list is much better than yours. Much better. (laughs) My list kicks your list ass. And let me tell you something. Everyone would laugh at mine and hardly anybody would laugh at all of yours. Just letting you know that. Everyone would leave my show happy laughing, thoughtful, thinking, and just having a great time here is going to be like, eh. I mean, I didn't, I didn't bring on the show to insult you, but now that I mentioned Don Rickles, I, I kind of have to start insulting you because I'm going to do You my... do. Well, you have to go after my ethnicity. You have to go for everybody's ethnicity now. We all, you know, <laughs> you have to go after... <laughs> Should I call you a hockey puck too? <laughs> you, you absolutely, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I, I would like anyone who listens to this who doesn't know who Don Rickles is or is too young to understand who Don Rickles is, Google Don Rickles. He's been on, you know, he goes on, even into his 90s, he was on Jay Leno and David Letterman and all those shows. It, it is a great question for you to ask, Richard. It is a fair question for you to ask, but it is a motherfucking hard question to answer because there are so many greats depending on the time. Oh, I know. I've been leaving heart. off some of the greatest comedians of all time because they're just older and I don't even really remember them, but I've, you know, I mean, gosh, Abbott and Costello, I mean, they were geniuses and it was just, you know, Probably a hundred that I'm leaving. Lenny Bruce, of course, but before my time. Okay, so now let's talk about what gave you the idea to start this PRO for comedians and who were some. Oh, we forgot about George Carlin. We forgot about George Carlin, who is widely recognized as one of the great yeah, comedians George of all Carlin's time. George Carlin's another another absolute genius, just genius in the way they process seven information. World, seven words you can't say on television. Come on, everyone. I mean. Everyone knew that seven words you can't say on television. Okay. I think we'd have to change the words. But, I know. Okay. Okay. Do you, what are the seven words you can't say on television? Do you remember them? What were they? They were, were they shit, piss, fuck, cocksucker, motherfucker, tits. I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. You close. can't eat just one. Very good. That was very good, yeah, Jeff. Thank you. Yes, very good. Oh, yeah. Okay, so now you leave Audium and you decide to start this PRO for comedians. What gives you the idea to do this? And what are you trying to? How are you trying to help them? What are you trying to do? The United States does something very odd, and it does the same thing as Iraq. I think North Korea does this, 
when AM and FM radio plays that Arista recording of I Will Always Love You as performed by Whitney Houston, when AM and FM radio plays that, AM and FM radio in the United States do not pay Arista Records or Whitney Houston. They do pay Dolly Parton, who wrote the song, for the performing rights of her song, but they don't pay Arista or Whitney Houston. So the major labels thought, aha, here's a place where we could go squeeze some more money out, and began to lobby Congress to try to get radio, AM and FM radio, terrestrial radio, to pay them for the public performance of the sound recording. They're already paying Dolly Parton for the public performance of the lyric and melody. They want to get paid now for that sound recording. And the radio lobby fights back, and the record labels lose. They don't have to pay. But there was a concession. The concession was that Congress said, tell you what, when that sound recording is broadcast digitally, like from a satellite, like on the internet, like through your smartphone network, if it's a digital transmission and it's considered radio, then yes, Arista Records, you can get paid. Whitney Houston, you can get paid. And Dolly Parton, you can get paid. And so Congress passed these rules, these laws, legislation and regulations where they created a statutory license, where they created a license that you couldn't say no to, and they actually regulated how much money gets paid for the use of the sound recording. And then Congress went a step further, and a quasi-governmental agency was created called Sound Exchange. And Sound Exchange was responsible for collecting all this money being paid to them from the digital broadcast, Sirius XM, Pandora, iHeartRadio, right, as examples. They would collect all this money, and then they would be responsible for distributing that money for the recording only to Arista Records and to the performer, Whitney Houston. They would not be responsible for the Dolly Partons of the world. The Dolly Partons of the world had a free market solution already. They had organizations that represented them for public performance, ASCAP and BMI being the two biggest, basically a duopoly, CSAC, a smaller third one, and GMR, which is a very small one, a small market share, but a lot of big artists. So there was the solution for digital radio. Sound Exchange would pay the labels and performers, and ASCAP, BMI, et cetera, would pay the Dolly Partons of the world. But what if it was spoken word and it wasn't music? If it's spoken word, there's different rules, there's different laws, there's different regulations. So Sound Exchange still collects the money for the recording. George Carlin records the words, there's no such thing as a civil war, right? There's a recording of that. The recording gets broadcast on digital radio through, let's say, Pandora. The money is paid by Pandora to Sound Exchange. Sound Exchange pays the record label, and then George Carlin gets some of the money as the performer. But who's collecting the money for the equivalent of Dolly Parton? George Carlin wrote his words. He controls the literary work, the equivalent of a lyric and melody. It's spoken word. But there isn't an ASCAP or a BMI to represent George Carlin's literary works. There's a big hole there. There's no organization there. And so the digital broadcast companies have performed the sound recordings, and they've gotten the licenses to them through the statutory license. But they kind of skipped over the part where they needed to get the license for that second copyright, the equivalent of the lyric and the melody called the literary work. They just used it without getting that license. And they've been infringing on George Carlin and every other spoken word comedian or other spoken word performer, uh, literary work rights from inception until current. And they know it. 
And so what I want to do and what I am doing is I launched a company called Word Collections, and we represent uh, the literary works of George Carlin. We just uh, began working for Bill Hicks, Roy Wood Jr., Jake Johansson, who else are we working for? Eddie Brill, uh, Nick Griffin, uh, a number of other comedians, where we represent their literary works for broadcast. We're a performing rights organization representing comedians and other spoken word performers to ensure that they get paid the rest of their money when there is a broadcast digitally of their sound recording. And yes, by the way, we will also collect it for AM and FM radio, but digital is a little easier because you have that sound exchange statement. There's your audit trail. It proves it was played. You just didn't get the license to make the other payment. So just like we did for musicians and songwriters, you want to use someone's shit, totally cool. Just get the license and make the appropriate payment. And if you don't want to do that, go write your own stuff. And if you can't do that, go sell shoes. But if you're going to have a multi-billion dollar company climbing off the back of other people's stuff, the least you could do is get a license and pay them. So that's Word Collections, and that's now live, and we're up, we're running, and we're working on getting these guys paid. Well, you're preaching in the choir there. That's um, well said about um, using people's stuff without paying because that's what I've been trying to help people do my entire career, and um, it's very satisfying. You know, one thing that drives me nuts is when people try and make excuses for infringement by you know, claiming it somehow stifles creativity, but what they don't understand is that these people live on their royalties. They depend on the work they've created generating income, and when it's just taken without proper license and payment, it's um, you know, it's like walking into a bank and and sticking them up with a with, not with a gun, but sticking them up with whatever. And um, you certainly it's no less thievery than that in my mind. So you're doing the Lord's work. Jeffrey Price. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, uh, you know, but it, it's so weird to me that this is controversial or should be even be seen as something extraordinary. This is not an extraordinary thing. This is if you want to use someone else's stuff, just get their permission and pay them. And the idea that it's radical or seen as God's work or even controversial in the slightest, the fact that you have to exist to pursue litigation around this very point to me is asinine and insane and wrong and just makes no sense. How are people this bad? Did you just say that it's insane that I exist? Is that what you said? Are you did you no, I said did you literally just that say that to... I shouldn't exist? That it's insane that I exist as a human being on this planet? That hurts. That might me. be the case, but that's not what I said. I could have <laughs> you said it's insane that I exist. I, I said it's insane that you have that that you have to be involved in litigation. You said, you said, I think you said it's insane that I exist. It was in the context of being litigious and having to pursue the fact the fact that you have this to. This brings exist me up to alternate in, realities and multiverses. Do I exist? Do I really exist? You, now you're making me question well, whether I even exist. Do I? Does, no, but the, do the point that I'm I'm very badly trying to make is it's kind of like do I'm I really have you. to fight for something that's so common sense? I mean, when I turn around, at first around I was fucking you, with you, and then I started thinking, questioning whether I even exist or not. So I don't know what's <laughs> happening. I, if you don't exist, I've done a good job of creating you because you're here in my head. Um, That's scary. I, you know, yeah. Well, maybe you all are. <laughs> the The idea that I have to fight with a company that's worth you know over a trillion dollars on market cap in a stock market and have them even come up with a defense. Oh, here's my favorite defense of the technology companies. It's too hard. It's too hard. We can't figure it out. Really? Fuck you. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like of all the excuses you have, 
it's too hard. You know, you can have a doctor perform surgery from China on someone in the United States using smartphones and robots and lasers, and you're telling me it's too hard for you to deal with having to go and clear a copyright. So fuck it. I'm just going to use it anyway, and I'll deal with it later after we already made our billions and done the damage because it's just too complicated. And then I'm going to whine to Congress and tell them, oh, it's too difficult. You should just give us a go because we really can't deal with having to figure out whose stuff we're using. I mean, that, that just just blows my mind. As my mom used to say, we can send a man to the moon, but we can't figure this out. Yeah. Well, Jeff, listen, it's been a pleasure. We've had you on for a while now, and, and I, your career has been an amazing one, and you've done a lot of great work. And um, I want to thank you for, for being on Blurred Laws in Life, and I'd love to have you back some other time if you'd like to continue this discussion. But in the meantime... And I'm going to leave you with one last question. Having heard my top five list of the greatest comedians of all time, Don Rickles, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, do you want to revise your five? I don't think it would be fair for me to revise my top list based on your peer pressure influence. But do you believe that my top five is better than your top five? That's my real question. Is it important to you that your list is better than mine? I think it's I think it's, it's self-evident in the words of Thomas, actually in the words of Benjamin Franklin. Do you know in the Declaration of in- Independence, this is a non-sequitur, but in the Declaration of Independence, there's actually the original draft. And Thomas Jefferson wrote, these rights are undeniable. And there's a draft where Benjamin Franklin scratched out undeniable and wrote above it self-evident. It's fucking amazing. They actually have that draft where Benjamin Franklin wrote in the word self-evident. So what I was going to say is my list is self-evident in the words of Benjamin Franklin. Well, how can I fight with self-evidence? <laughs> Do you agree that a mind is better? It is important to me that mine is better. Is it oh better? Oh, my God, Richard. You know what? Is it yes. better? Yes. Oh, my God. I have been reduced. I, am, I have. Yes. This is my cross-examination of my depositions, by the way. You can't handle the truth. Exactly. (laughs) All right, Mr. Price, thank you for your time. I'm going to have you back on Blurred Laws in Life sometime. You've been great, and I'd love to continue this conversation, and you're doing great work, and um, talk to you soon, bro. Thank you for having me. Talk to you. See you. Bye. Since I finished my interview with Jeff Price, I spoke to my good friend, client, and frequent Blurred Laws and Life guest, Scott Schreer, and he brought up comedians that Jeff and I, I think, both forgot, and some of which I think deserve to be on the top five list. In no particular order, Scott brought up to me, and we kind of did this together, Robin Williams, Rodney Dangerfield, Jonathan Winters, we mentioned Lenny Bruce, Jim Carrey, Bob Hope, Jack Benny, George Burns, and Andrew Dice Clay. In addition to those we already mentioned, Scott's top five list was Richard Pryor, Rodney Dangerfield, Bob Hope, Robin Williams, and Jonathan Winters. 
He also said that the greatest stand-up and controversial comedian, according to him, was Lenny Bruce. So I guess that's six for Scott. Anyways, this has been a lot of fun, this episode of Blurred Laws in Life. I hope you've enjoyed this episode number 30 of Blurred Laws in Life. I'll see you next week. Okay, wait one second. Wait a second. I know I just said that this was the end of episode number 30 of Blurred Laws in Life. But on cue, Blurred Laws in Life favorite Giancarlo Cersich called me and we started talking about the episode and comedians and he volunteered his own top five list. So Giancarlo, hi, and please tell everyone in Blurred Laws in Life land who you believe are the top five comedians of all time, please. All right. Well, Richard, thanks for having me back. And let's start with number five, um, Lenny Bruce. That was definitely, he's definitely in my, in my top five. I wish have I you ever him... seen him do a stand-up routine? Yes or no? Or are of you course, doing this based on, on reputation? No, I've watched every comedian I've either experienced live. Uh, how about I'll tell you the story. Lenny Bruce knew all about it. My college roommate turned me on to it. And it was phenomenal. Okay, fine. Number five, four for five me. Lenny Bruce, go ahead. Number four was Andrew Dice Clay. I was able to see him at Madison Square Garden. My father, against my mother's will, took me to see him when I was young. It was the most incredible. That and Bruce Springsteen Live were the two craziest things I ever saw right, when going. I was a young child. Keep going. Number three, Sebastian Meniscalco. Never heard of him. Go ahead. Keep going. No, I don't no know music. how you haven't heard of him. He's personally, I mean, he's sold out. Madison Square Garden four times alone. He's got God knows how many Netflix specials. Okay. Number two, Rodney Dangerfield. Okay. Saw him once at his club in New York City. Um, but obviously his movies and all of that turned me on to him when I was young. And then my number one was George Carlin because it was my dad's favorite and we used to watch it together. Again, something my mom didn't think was appropriate, but my father had a different idea. Your list, about how your list is bullshit. So the only one on your list that deserves mention in the top five list is Ronnie Dangerfield. I mean, I can't say I've ever heard Lenny Bruce. I mean, I know his reputation, but your list is bullshit. I told you my list, my list. Number five, Don Rickles. Number four, Chris Rock. Number three, Eddie Murphy. Number two, Steve Martin. Number one, Richard Pryor. Rodney Dangerfield, I have to admit, does belong in that list somewhere, but um, he's incredible. But my list is so much fucking better than your list. It's not even fucking funny. Anyways, right, so let me give you a point of reference since you know everything and, and no I one do. knows anything. So Rolling Stone Magazine, you consider them... I don't you, consider you, them you anything. Rolling Stone Magazine, whatever. Go ahead. Okay. They're number five is Chris Rock. Their number four is Louis C.K. Their number three is Lenny Bruce. Their number two is George Carlin. And their number one is Richard Pryor. Thank you. So many of my mine are on that list. Chris Rock's on that list. Richard Pryor's my number one also. But you're like four of the five people that are mentioned don't even make your list. I mean, aren't even on that list. But listen, your list is full of shit. Anyways, I got to go. We've been on this show. You called episode me. Number, we, listen, bullshit. we've been on episode number 30 now for like an hour, over an hour. People are going to get annoyed. They think it's too long. Some people like the hour long episode, but we can continue this some other time. I don't have any more time for you. That's my point. My list is better than yours. That's the bottom line. Agree or disagree? With you, it's always better to agree. Thank you. See everyone next week on Blurred Laws and Life.